So, Revelation chapter 7, a tremendous text. Remember last week in chapter 6, we saw um, the judgments of God upon planet Earth uh, that both vindicate, uh, the, vindicate the person of God and they also bring judgment on human evil and human sin. And a lot of the judgments that come on human evil and human sin are, are just the result of our evil and our sin running their course. I mean, a lot of the judgment, a lot of the pain that uh, is inflicted upon human beings, we inflict upon each other. And you kind of see that throughout the book of Revelation. I mean, like with the horsemen of the apocalypse, you know, the war, the famine, the bloodshed, that's us doing something to ourselves. So really about the only thing God needs to do for judgment to prevail on planet Earth is to do what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, take away his restraining influence. Uh, if God takes away his restraining influence, then human evil and human sin will do just really horrible things. So we, we saw that in chapter 6, and I pointed out to you that the last verse in chapter 6, there in verse 17, ends with the question, who can stand? In light of all this judgment coming on planet Earth, who can stand? In light of all the violence that's part of the human condition, in light of all the persecution that's been written um, strongly into the history of the Christian people, uh, who can stand? Chapter 7 answers that. Chapter 7 is an interlude. There are four interludes in the book of Revelation. Uh, here in chapter 7, uh, chapter 10, chapter 12, and chapter 20, there'll be interludes that will occur. All of the interludes, and this makes perfect sense, all of the interludes um, are inserted into the drama to let us know the secure place, the safety of the people of God during this time, during these events. Again, chapter 6 ends with who, who can stand. So chapter 7 shows you the people of God and how the people of God are sustained uh, during the uh, terror, terror and trials of this life. Uh, and I think these interludes occur four different times in the book of Revelation to give us a break. You know, from just the constant picture, beginning in chapter 6, the constant picture of, of human evil and human sin running rampant on planet Earth. So throughout uh, this section, uh, chapter 6 to the end of the book, until uh, we get to the climax, uh, we have these interludes that give us these pictures of the security of the people of Christ in the midst of these difficult times. In chapter 7, you will see two pictures. You will see a vision of uh, the people of God, and I'm moving into interpretation now. You'll see a vision of the people of God secure on earth during the time of trial, and you'll see a picture of the people of God in heaven, obviously secure. Uh, during this time of trial. Uh, it's a great, great picture. Um, part of this text is frequently read like on All Saints Sunday, uh, usually verse 9 and following. 
So, let's jump into it. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. After this, John says, I saw four angels. You've met them several times. Four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. By the way, the ancient world knew that the earth was a sphere. You know, that's an urban myth that there was ever anybody who thought if you sailed long enough, you'd fall off the edge. We, we, we have lots of evidence, as far back as Aristotle, that they were smart enough they'd watch a, a ship sail away, and what happens? Eventually it disappears because the earth is a sphere. The ancient world always knew the earth was a sphere. That was an urban myth your elementary school teachers told you when they said that, you know, somebody, you know, Columbus was afraid that he'd fall off the edge if he sailed too far. Well, the ancients all knew that the earth was a sphere. You tell that while watching sunrises and sunsets. Um, but, but there's frequently references to the four corners, and that just means south, north, south, east, and west. Uh, that's the four directions uh, of the compass. Uh, the ancients knew that. So you see a reference here to these four angels holding back the four winds of the earth because there's several references throughout particularly the Hebrew Bible where the winds of the earth sometimes blow in judgment, blow in travail, blow in pain, blow in a foreign people who comes to um, oppress or attack or oppress the people of God. So what you see happening here at chapter 7, this is the interlude, what you see happening here are, are these four angels holding back the four winds so that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Again, it's an interlude. It's like a, almost a pause in the, in the action here. Verse 2. Then I, John says, I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun. Um, that's from the east, right? They knew that. Uh, frequently in scripture, uh, help comes from the east. Good comes from the east. So something coming from the east, I don't even have to keep reading the, the verse here, but in the biblical mindset, when something comes from the rising of the sun, comes from the east, this is probably going to be you know, something like uh, the Calvary riding in or something. It's going to be good, and it is here. He says, Then I saw another angel ascending from uh, the rising of the sun, coming from the east, with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power uh, to harm the earth and sea. Again, the winds have been stopped. Judgment has ceased for this interlude. Uh, they are told to stop. Verse 3, this angel says to them, verse 3, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees, which you saw that happening at the end of chapter 6. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have, here it is again, sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Um, let me say a word about sealing, because it's prominent in the book of Revelation. It's prominent in the book of Revelation because it's prominent in biblical literature. We saw the sealing of the scroll. Uh, a seal would be a clump of clay or wax that would be placed over the folded document, and the ruler or the official would use uh, his signet ring or perhaps some other emblem to just mash down on the wax or the seal in order to secure the document to keep it from being tampered with. So when you sealed something in the ancient world, you were keeping it from being tampered with, um, like when they sealed Jesus' tomb. You, you, you would seal something to keep it safe, keep it protected. Um, 
So to be sealed means that somehow you're being set aside, set apart, and protected. Uh, we know from Paul's writings, uh, even baptism in the early church was referred to as a sealing. You know, in baptism, you're claimed as belonging to God. Uh, so that's why this concept of sealing, being sealed, um, uh, even referred to baptism in the early church. The, um, so it has something to do with protecting, claiming, protecting. Um, we know that when you talk about sealing. Uh, again, you're, you're being shown a picture of the people of God here at the beginning of chapter 7, still yet on the earth in the time of trial, in the time of terror, in the time of great, great hardship. And uh, for the last 2,000 years, as I said several times last week, in the 2,000 years, uh, there have been many, many, many Christians who would attest to the validity, the truthfulness of what we're getting ready to read. That God will seal us, God will protect us, God will take care of us in the midst of the trial. Um, this section can almost be a parallel section to Psalm 91. That could be your homework. Psalm 91, of course, is that great psalm that talks about protection, God's protection for God's people. That's the psalm that was placed um, in the air raid shelters in London during the German Blitz of the Second World War. It's a great psalm of comfort because it talks about how God will protect us, how God will seal us during time of, of great travail. Now, again, Christians for 2,000 years have vouched for the validity, truthfulness of what we're seeing here, that in the midst of great trials, God somehow takes care of us. God protects us. Now, we all know, unless we're really delusional, we all know that that doesn't mean we don't hurt. That doesn't mean we're not harmed. That doesn't mean we don't hurt. That doesn't mean that we don't even die for our faith. Uh, Sunday, I talked about martyrdoms uh, from the pulpit. I mean, a lot of Christians have, have given the ultimate sacrifice and, and, and given their life because of their faith in Christ. That's been a constant throughout Christian history. It's not been a constant in high point, but it's been a constant throughout Christian history, particularly uh, around the world. Still is. Still is. Uh, I think the statistic I gave Sunday was, according to the U.S. State Department, one, according to the U.S. State Department, there are 60 nations on the globe right now where it's dangerous to be Christian. And if you look at those nations and do the math, which I'm glad somebody else did, it, it ends up being like one in every nine Christians on planet Earth right now are in a place where it's very, very dangerous to be Christian. This has been our history. Uh, you know, you may say, well, why, why don't they like us? Um, and there's lots of reasons for that. That's another topic for another day. But I would just simply say, uh, when Jesus does something, the enemy wakes up. And the enemy comes after whatever it is Jesus is doing on planet Earth. Uh, when the kingdom of light uh, advances, the kingdom of darkness advances right along with it. And again, this has just been our experience for 2,000 years. We know that God takes care of us in those trying times. Now, what we don't know... What do we do know? What we know not to say is that somehow when you get cut, you won't bleed. You know, when they beheaded the, and I talked about this Sunday, but you can look it up if you weren't here Sunday, when uh, the radical 
Muslims killed those 21 Coptic Christians by beheading them in 2015 uh, on the shore of the Mediterranean there in northern Libya. And, of course, they videotaped it and showed it worldwide to whoever would watch it. Um, Yeah, they died, all 21. They were decapitated. They all died. Christians have a long history of this. We, We die like everybody else. So what does it mean to say uh, Psalm 91 or this section in in Revelation uh, 7? What does it mean to say we're sealed, we're protected, God will take care of us? Um, what does that mean? Well, we again, we have 2,000 years of history of this. We know what it means. Uh, he, he's not going to take you out of the trial. He'll be with you in the trial. He'll give you the, he'll give you the strength to be sustained in the trial. And if you die... You'll be fine. So, uh, like I, I, what I tend to say, and I borrow this from Charles Haddon Spurgeon, uh, God will let you be hurt. God will not let you be harmed. And what I mean by that is God will let you hurt. Uh, he will not let you be spiritually or eternally harmed. If he has to take you home to get you out of the hurt, he'll take you home to get you out of the hurt. But again, in the Christian faith, life on this world, life on this globe is not the most important thing to us. So that's why we claim and we profess, we have 2,000 years of tradition now, that says um, uh, God will let us be hurt, but God will not let us be harmed. God will not let us be harmed ultimately. He will not let us be harmed spiritually. If we stay close to Christ, will not let us be uh, uh, harmed um, for eternity. Um, that's what I mean sometimes. You probably don't know this, but that's what I mean sometimes when I when I say God has promised He'll get us home before the dark. I mean, at some point we're going to be taken care of. Now, again, we have two thousand years of history. That doesn't mean you're going to be sucked out of the problem. You, you will go through the problem, and it'll be a great opportunity to witness to your faith. Uh, when my ancestor, some of you, well, if you. I mentioned it twice in sermons, all they ever mentioned it here. Well, I, I keep two pictures in my preaching Bible uh, that I use on Sunday mornings. One is a picture of those 21 Coptic Christians. It's an icon, religious painting of those 21 Coptic Christians that died in 2015. The other one, though, is a, is a picture of a, a wood carving of the death of John Rogers. Uh, John Rogers was the first Protestant martyr killed by the monarch of England that we Protestants anyway refer to as Bloody Mary that that really is more than a drink with tomato juice Bloody Mary was a monarch in England who uh, killed Protestants and the first Protestant she killed during her reign she killed 250 the first Protestant she killed was John Rogers Um, John Rogers along with William Tyndale and Miles Coverdale uh, was was among the first translators of the Bible from Latin into English, and that got you obviously in trouble in the 16th century uh, during the Protestant Reformation. Uh, John Rogers um, was one of those, along with Tyndale and Coverdale, who translated the Bible from Latin into English. Uh, he was burned at the stake, first one. Uh, if you have Fox's Book of Martyrs, which all Protestants used to have in their homes, they had to have their hymnal, they'd have their Bible, they'd have Fox's Book of Martyrs. And their fourth book would be Josephus's History of the Jews. But if you have Fox's Book of Martyrs, you'll, you'll read about all the martyrs throughout history. But when you get to the section about Bloody Mary and the Protestant Reformation, uh, you'll read the story of John Rogers. 
and John Rogers was the first one that was martyred, February 1555. Uh, he refused to recant his convictions, um, and he was led out to the stake there in Smithfield, as part of London, and he was burned at the stake. His wife, um, and he had like 12 children, some of them were present, uh, watched him burn, as did a whole lot of other people. That was entertainment in the 16th century. They watched him burn. He refused to recant. But So John Rogers became the first martyr under Bloody Mary. Um, he was hurt. He gave his life. But he was not eternally or spiritually or ultimately harmed. Uh, he got home before the dark. Um, he, he ended up okay on the other side. Uh, the reason I always talk about John Rogers and reasons in my Bible is I'm a direct descendant of John Rogers, of which I'm very proud. Um, that's not hard because, as I said, he had 12 children. So there's a lot of us that are direct descendants of John Rogers, but I, I'm very proud to be a direct descendant of a Cambridge scholar who helped to translate the Bible into English and uh, paid with his life. And that's why you know I keep a picture of John Rogers in my Bible um, so that if I, you know, if I choose to whine on a certain day, I look at that picture and I say, you know, it's not quite so bad. <laughs> you know, we need, it's, it's all a matter of perspective. Uh, but John Roger, just like those 21 martyrs uh, that were killed by the Muslims in 2015, that was just a very high profile. And those are small numbers. Thousands are dying around the world. Uh, that's been uh, the way the Christian um, church's history been written. Remember, you may, well, I'll tell you, Tertullian was the early church father. He was the one who said, he literally said, it's morphed frequently as it gets quoted, but Tertullian said, the blood of Christians is seed. Now, usually it gets translated, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. You know, the more they kill us, the more the church seems to progress. That's been our history. Anyway, so I think we probably know something about what it means that God seals us, God protects us. Again, you know, when you read Psalm 91, you know, when the it says, in a sense, you won't be hurt. Well, again, they were reading it in the bomb shelters in London during the Nazi Blitz, and there were several of them dying. Uh, but they, they, it was a promise that ultimately, spiritually, the worst anybody can ever do to you is take your life. And that's not the worst thing. Uh, in the Christian faith, the last thing is never the worst thing. Remember the resurrection thing, Easter, all that stuff? Um, I mean, the worst they can do is take your life, but the last thing's never the worst thing in, in the Christian faith. So I think you know what the ceiling means. Um, so it doesn't mean that you, you, you'll be spared suffering, uh, but God somehow will bear you up through the suffering and get you home before the dark. So that's what you have here. These, these servants, this is again symbol, symbolic. The servants are being sealed on their forehead. Um, that's just a symbol. They're being claimed by God. Uh, you need to remember this when you get to chapter 13 because the beast that you'll meet later, the beast will be sealing his followers also on the forehead. And everybody seems to know this with the number 666. That's chapter 13. We'll get there eventually. But before you ever see the sealing of the beast upon his followers, those earth dwellers that we keep talking about, um, here you see the people of God being sealed. God, God's going to take care of us. So um, it's a symbol, and it becomes clear. Look at verse 4 and following. So who's being sealed? Verse 4. And I heard the number 
have heard the number. Isn't that interesting? I heard the number. The book of Revelation is symbolic. I heard the number of the sealed. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, you know, 144,000 is symbolic. I'll show it in a moment. It's obviously symbolic, and it's obvious what the symbol is, I think. Most of us think. But, of course, you know, there's, there's a group that will come knocking on your door. And they used to prominently and preeminently say, join them, you'd be part of the 144,000. And they meant 144,000. Uh, because it became problematic along about 1914 when they ended up with more than 144,000. So now they say, you know, the 144,000 of their group, their tribe, uh, are the number that will reign upon the earth. But you can still get in and you'll reign in heaven. But the 144,000, because for them it's a literal number, it's done been maxed out. Um yeah, you know better than that group. They'll knock on your door. Uh, again, the book of Revelation is highly symbolic. Uh, the, the symbol here is not unusual. You know what the symbol 12 stands for, right? Twelve apostles or twelve tribes. We've already seen that multiple times, two times already, and you continue to see it throughout the rest of the book. So 12, um, 12 refers to the 12 tribes, 12 refers to the 12 apostles. So 24, just like the 24 elders, refers to the whole people of God. Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant, Hebrew, um, Israelite, and the church. So um, 12, 12 times 12 is what? Times a thousand, 144,000. This is the people of God, the whole people of God. Um, and most everybody agrees with that. This is the whole people of God. Now, there are people out there um, that, are, that are descendants of John Nelson Darby, who started writing in 1830. And he came up with a lot of ideas, such as the one and a half comings of Christ, you know, rapture halfway, seven years of tribulation, the tribulation, and then the second coming. That's John Nelson Darby. That's pop culture. That's not in the New Testament. Uh, some of that crowd wants this first picture to be of Jews only. I'll show you in a minute why that's not a good solution. They want this 144,000 to be of Jews only, and they want the next picture to be of the church. Um, most of us, um, and most of us throughout Christian history, see both of these pictures, this one the one we're getting ready to look at, as the same group. Um, the book of Revelation, as I've pointed out several times, loves repetition. The reason the book of Revelation loves repetition is the book of Daniel loves repetition. As does the book of Genesis loves repetition. A good teacher knows to repeat things to their students. So, um, you know, we're not surprised you, that we think we see repetition here in chapter 7. We see two pictures being painted in slightly different ways. They're really the same group. And that same group for most of us is the whole people of God. Old Testament, New Testament people, because the 144,000. Um, 
that's pretty clear to us. We don't see, uh, you know, some some people will say the 144,000 are the Jews that are converted during the tribulation of the last seven years. Not all church history, but the last seven years, they'll say it's just the Jews who are who are who are who are converted during that period, who become evangelists during that period. That's just a whole lot more complicated than the rest of us see. Uh, and we we think this is is all the people of God. 144, 12 times 12, 12,000, 144,000. So it's pretty clear to us. And I'll show you how it gets even clearer because it says 144,000 sealed from what? Every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now here comes something interesting. Here's this list. So that's why some people look at, oh, this is only Jewish people. Here's 12 tribes of Israel. This is only Jewish people. Well, you need to study the list closely. There's some interesting things about the list. One, what's the first tribe mentioned? Judah. In the Hebrew Bible, do you know what the first tribe mentioned is? Because he's the youngest. Reuben. Here, it's not Reuben. It's Judah. Why might you think the first tribe mentioned is Judah? Who comes from Judah? Jesus, line of the tribe of Judah. Now, again, if you look at the 12, Jesus is always the best answer in the church. If you look at the 12 tribes here, it starts with Judah, not like you normally would with Reuben. But the other thing you notice as you look through, it's not the same 12 as the 12 tribes that you run across in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, Ephraim is gone. And the one that's we tend to notice the most that's gone is Dan is gone. Um, Manasseh has been put here and Joseph has been put here because you have to keep 12. The number 12 is important. But they're playing with the names. Visions playing with the names. Um, most of us are pretty certain why Dan's not in the list. Uh, throughout the Hebrew Bible, particularly the, the latter parts of the Hebrew Bible, uh, Dan was the tribe that seemed to be most associated with idolatry. Up north is where they built the rival temple. Go to Israel with me, I'll show it to you. They built, they built the rival temple up in Dan. Uh, the way the, the Holy Land is named in the Bible is from Dan to Beersheba. Uh, Dan's far north, Beersheba's far south. Dan's in the far north. And, uh, you know, they first said, well, we're a long way from Jerusalem. Let's build our own temple. That was a no-no. But then what happened throughout much of their history, the temple became a high place. And that was a technical term for idolatry, worship of Asherahs and Baals. So Dan in the Hebrew Bible was associated with idolatry. So that's a good reason to leave him out of this list. Uh, Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers, said, I like Irenaeus, so. I'll, I'll listen to him. Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers, said, and he says he's quoting something that they were commonly saying in the second century. Irenaeus said, Dan is the tribe from which the Antichrist will come. So two good reasons to leave Dan out of the list. So here's a list of 12 tribes of Israel, but it's not the real 12 tribes of Israel. So what might it be? Well, the Christian community has said forever till 1830 and modern America, we've said it's, it's the spiritual Israel. It's the spiritual descendants. Um, Paul was very clear um, who, this, who spiritual Israel is. 
uh, spiritual Israel is gathered in the room right now. Uh, the church is spiritual Israel. We've been grafted onto the vine. That doesn't replace um, original Israel, but we are now part of it. We're spiritual Israel. We are spiritually descendants of Abraham. All of that simply to say takes us back to the same place I started. This is a picture of all the people of God. These are not ethnic Jews that are being referenced here. If so, they've messed the list up. But they, the, the list has be, been redone. You know, get Judah in there, number one, get Dan out of it. Uh, let Joseph be part of it. Um, the, the list has been redone uh, to give you the sense that this has been tweaked a little bit, spiritual Israel. So again, most of us assume both these visions here are the same thing, shown repetitively two different times, the people of God that's going to be taken care of. These are the sealed people. So here in vision one, and this is a slight difference from the vision. Here in vision one, this is the people of God on earth being sealed, being protected. They will get home before the dark. They may be hurt, but they will not ultimately be harmed. That's been our promise for 2,000 years. So look at verse 9. Here comes the next vision. Um, You're going to sort of shift now from earth, the people of God on earth, to the people of God in heaven. This is a passage that gets read a lot on All Saints Sunday. So, John says, verse 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude. This is for those of you that haven't figured out yet that the 144,000 is a symbolic number. It's a big number, a whole bunch. Uh, so now it's just a great multitude. Behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. We've ran across that phrase before. It's universal. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. I want you to keep your eye on the Lamb as I make my way through chapter 7. So here's the multitude that no one can number in heaven before the throne. So this is the people of God in heaven. It's obvious. Clothed in white robes. You know, symbolic of victory, of celebration. Of purity, with palm branches in their hands. Palm branches have always been a symbol of victory and celebration. They waved them when Jesus came to town on um, what we call Palm Sunday. Uh, the reason they probably waved them on that day is they uh, had a very vivid memory of uh, the Maccabees uh, revolting in the second century and taking back Jerusalem, taking back the temple from the Seleucid Greeks. And for a little period, they actually have they had home self-rule uh, there under the Maccabean rulers. That's what Hanukkah celebrates. And uh, during that period, after the Maccabees retook their city and retook their temple, uh, palm branches became a symbol of victory. And we have lots of coins uh, dated from that period um, that, 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 that has a picture of the palm branch, a symbol of celebration. So they're waving palm branches in their hands. Verse 10, and crying out with a loud voice, they're singing. That doesn't surprise you at this point. Salvation or deliverance, if you prefer, prefer, or rescue, if you prefer. That's part of what salvation is. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Again, keep you on the Lamb. Watch what happens in this chapter. So they're singing. Here's the church gathered in heaven, celebrating, waving palm branches. They're worshiping. They're singing. This is what we do in heaven. Um, 
and they're singing to, to, to the one who sits on the throne of the Lamb. Verse 11, and all the angels were standing. You've not seen this picture before in chapters uh, 4 and 5. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God. Again, you know the activity of heaven. So that's why I say if you don't care much for worship, God's not going to impose that on you for eternity. He'll let you have whatever else it is you think you're choosing. So, but if you if if you're into worshiping the true God, that's what you're going to be doing for eternity. That's why we keep seeing the activity of heaven being. So here they're, they're worshiping, um, and again you see the prostrate posture. They fell on their faces before the throne. They worship God, saying, "And you already know what's coming." In verse twelve. Amen, blessing, glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might. Seven, that's perfect praise. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So there's the people in heaven, perfect praise being offered to God. That's sort of our activity in heaven. So you need to, you know, what we do on Sunday morning is we practice for this. So I hope you show up for practice on Sunday, you know, and learn to sing. Um, learn to want to sing. You know, it doesn't care if you do it well or not, uh, because that's going to be part of our activity, and we're going to love it for all eternity. Okay, so that's now to look at that how it ends. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, um, "And because the elder here is so proud, and he wants to make sure John doesn't miss who it is John's looking at." So one of the elders addresses John and says, "Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come?" Verse 14, John said, Sir, you know. Um, I like that. I think that's John's way of saying, Sir, I don't know. Um, that's a way to get out of answering the question. Or maybe he knows and he's just being reverential to the person asking, to the elder asking. So John says, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. Um, they're in heaven. They've come out of the great tribulation. They're on the other side. Um, now, it's interesting in this verse here, because it does have the article, the, the, the great tribulation. Um, so some people say, ha-ha, there it is, the last seven years of human history, and the last seven years only. And, of course, I would... I'm fine with it being part of the last seven years, but I make it longer than that and broader than that. And Christians have been involved in this persecution since the beginning of our movement. And the verse tells you that because notice it says, these are the ones coming out. Um, if you have any English teachers in the room, you know what a present participle is. Uh, this is a present participle in the Greek. They're coming out. That means it's continual, continuous, ongoing activity. It didn't just happen at one point. So it's the people who have been coming out now for 2,000 years of the great tribulation that we call this life. Uh, it will get worse at some point. It already gets worse and better at different points in history. But these are the people in heaven. These are the ones who have been coming out who are continuing to come out of the Great Tribulation. Some, trans, some translations, your translation may say ordeal or persecution. Some translations just avoid the word tribulation because uh, some people just have 
co-opted that word tribulation and they've made something out of the great tribulation of only seven years at the end of history they've done something with the word that the bible never did with it Uh, so that's why some translations even avoid the word tribulation they say ordeal or something but it's it's thalipsis in the greek it means tribulation ordeal bad time so these are they who have been constantly continually coming out of the great tribulation And again, book of Revelation is symbolic. Look at the next phrase. They have washed their robes and made them white in Clorox. In the blood of the Lamb. Now you wash something in blood, what color is it going to be? So it makes no rational sense to say you wash your robes in the blood of the Lamb, they come out white. Makes perfect theological sense makes no rational sense or scientific sense. It makes perfect theological sense. The book of Revelation is symbolic. And then it ends with a string of quotations from the Old Testament to help you understand a little more about heaven. And all of these we're going to run into again at the end of the book of Revelation. So I'll run through them. Therefore, they, these ones in heaven, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night. And you can translate the word serve him as worship like we do when we say worship service. They serve him. They worship him day and night in his temple. The word temple is used 16 times in the book of Revelation. It always is the specific Greek word for that part of the temple, not the outer courts, but that part of the temple where the presence of God dwelled. And that makes sense for heaven, right? It's where the presence of God is. So these people he's seeing in heaven... Um, They're worshiping, serving God constantly in his temple. And notice this. Um, They're before the throne of God and and worship on the temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Shelter the word there. Actually, it's tabernacle. Go back to John chapter 1. Jesus came among us. He dwelt among us. Jesus was God tabernacling among us. It's what John 1 says. But keep reading. Uh, and I told you to watch the lamb. Don't take your eye off the lamb. They shall hunger no more. Um, by the way, that what we just read, a chunk of it came out of Isaiah, I mean Isaiah, Ezekiel 37. Uh, this bit here about they shall hunger no more, neither thirsty more. The sun shall not strike them, nor scorching heat. That comes out of Isaiah, like Isaiah chapter 49 and a couple other places. Uh, verse 17. For the lamb... Is where now? Is in the midst, or if you prefer, the center of the throne. When they knock on your door and they tell you there's no Trinity in the Bible, or the word, well, they say there's no Trinity. They say there's no, the word Trinity's not there and the word's not there. Trinity's there. You're looking at part of it here. The Lamb has gotten, up to this point, it's been the one on the throne and the Lamb. Now the Lamb is on the throne. There's only one way the Jewish mind could ever do that, and that's to say this Lamb shares in divinity. So for the Lamb in the midst or in the center of the throne will be their shepherd, our ruler. And this Lamb who's on the throne will guide us to springs of living water. And and again, this comes from Isaiah 25 at this point. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. 
Uh, you're going to hear that again in, in, in chapter 21 when we get there. Usually when it's read in a funeral, it's coming out of chapter 21 of Revelation. Every tear shall be wiped from their eye, eyes. I think maybe what that means, because if you stop to think about it a moment, you probably think you shouldn't have any tears in heaven. Here they have tears, but they're being wiped away. Um, and we've contemplated over that for the last couple thousand years. You know, why would you have tears in heaven? Maybe they're tears of joy. Um, the wiping away of the tears might symbolize for us, and it's certainly true whether this symbolizes or not, um, part of what's going to make heaven heaven for us is bad memories, sad memories will have to be wiped away. And that, that might be what's being symbolized here, the bad memories, the hard memories. You know, I mean, you can't go through eternity in bliss if you're remembering your loved ones that aren't there, if you're remembering the pain of this life. Somehow it's all going to be past. The bad memories are gone. I think that feels good to me, and I think it fits. That's what, Maybe that's what it means when it says God will wipe every tear from their eyes. We're promised that in Isaiah 25, 8. You're going to be promised it again in Revelation 21. So um, there's really not much debate among um, serious scholars uh, upon what we're looking at in chapter 7. So that's chapter 7.